Hello everyone, this is Chris. Welcome to another podcast episode here on the Actual Fluency Podcast. Today we're going to be talking to Rosemary Solomon, professor at St. John's College in Queens, New York, and she's previously worked with international bilingual programs, language education, English education as well. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about this topic of English on the rise and the global politics and risks that it brings with it, because now we're seeing uh, about a quarter of the world uh, learning English or speaking English to some degree, uh, kind of the urgency for learning other foreign languages has dwindled. And so this is what Rosemary has laid out in this new book that's come out. And in this episode, we go over the concept a little bit. And I uh, asked some of my, you know, usual uh, ignorant questions about these fields. Um, I was very interested to, to hear about uh, the kind of effects of universities offering their entire programs in English rather than the local language and kind of the legal precedent that's set up. Um, and you also hear a little bit about how Rosemary went from the language side of things into the legal side of things because she felt that that was just underrepresented, like the some of the groups, the minorities and the language groups. And there were some legal challenges on campus that, you know, these groups were facing on a regular basis. And with the increasing dem demand for English, uh, this uh, demand for legal, uh, let's say, change or improvement uh, was also greater. So uh, kind of a different episode today, not uh, specifically about language learning, but I think uh, you'll enjoy it anyway. I certainly did enjoy talking to Rosemary. And um, yeah, we'll see you in the next Actual Fluency Podcast coming your way very soon. And if you're more interested in this topic, I highly recommend checking out Rosemary's book, The Rise of English, Global Politics and the Power of Language uh, by Oxford University Press. Uh, press, I've <laughs> been learning too much uh, Portuguese lately. Um, you know what I mean. Uh, go check it out. It's on Amazon. So uh, Rosemary, welcome to the Actual Fluency Podcast. I'm excited today to have a, a little discussion about English uh, as a global language, global phenomenon, but also uh, anything else that comes up. So. Do you want to start out by giving the listeners a little bit of your background, where you come from in terms of languages? Well, my, my journey to the book has been uh, certainly not direct, I'll put it that way. Uh, I started out in terms of my career, uh, I started out in a graduate program in, with a PhD in linguistics and education. Uh, and during that time, I taught French to elementary school children. I taught uh, English to international students at Columbia University, where I was doing my graduate work. I uh, developed programs for bilingual students in New York City, uh, for Italian and Spanish-speaking students, and uh, French-Haitian students as well. It was a very diverse community. And it was really in that capacity that in working in very disadvantaged communities with underprivileged children, that I felt the need, if I was really going to be an advocate for these children, that I had to go to law school. Oh, and wow. so immediately after the PhD, that propelled me into law school. Uh, and so the rest is kind of history. Uh, and then I came into teaching. I, I first taught at uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I was teaching uh, bilingual, bilingual, well, it was really language planning and language planning from an international perspective and education law and education finance there. Uh, and I did that for, I guess, five years. And, and in the middle of that, I went back to law school 
uh, and completed uh, an LLM, a master's degree in constitutional law. And wow. so that's what took me into teaching in law school. Uh, and I teach constitutional law and administrative law, but I also teach a, a seminar on children in the law and a comparative equality and anti-discrimination seminar, which I'm teaching this semester, which I absolutely love. It's just 19 students once a week and we sit there and talk about all the global issues of the day. Wow. Uh, and so if I look at my research, the common thread coming through my research all these years, it has been educational equity and educational opportunity and educational access, looking at various in various areas of it. Uh, I came back to language about, I guess, about 15 years ago when I started writing my last book before the, the current book, uh, True American. Uh, and there I looked at the education of immigrant children, largely in the United States, but the last chapter looks at Europe and the education of migrant children in Europe. Uh, and so after that, shortly after that, I came across two legal issues that absolutely fascinated me and that drove my life for the next eight years, which is the current book. Uh, and one was in France and one was in Italy. In France, it was uh, a proposal, a legislative proposal to give more flexibility to teaching in languages other than French in French universities. And it just caused an incredible controversy throughout the country. Uh, there were a number of intellectuals who thought this was just, it was harmful to the French language, that French is the language of the Republic, uh, that it was, going, it was contrary to French values, but it did pass. And it was called the Fioraso Law. At the same time, just exactly the same time, there was an issue uh, just running through Milan in Italy the very prestigious Polytechnic Institute of Milan. Uh, and there it was a proposal to shift all graduate programs into English within two years, all masters, all doctoral programs wow. within two years. Uh, it was passed by the Senate, the faculty Senate adopted it, but it was opposed very strongly by about a hundred professors. And so they ultimately took the Polytechnic Institute to court and ultimately Ultimately, they did win. It took them about five or six years, but they did. That case, I started really digging into it and started writing about these two legal issues in France and Italy in small commentaries, trying to, you know, looking at the commonalities and differences between the issues and how they were playing out against two very different histories and cultures in France and in Italy. This idea of English, uh, English medium instruction in, in, in European universities. I got to know the cast of characters at the Polytechnic Institute quite well over those years. I visited the institute, interviewed a number of people, faculty and students. Um, they kept sending me the, all the litigation papers over the years and I kept writing about it. And so at some point then I started thinking, well, this is a much bigger problem. It's just not, you know, this whole idea of English spreading across the globe. I hadn't really thought about it, but I started seeing various aspects of it. The original book was only going to look at Europe and the United States, you know, how English, our lack of foreign languages in this country and our, our sense of 
kind of uh, English exceptionalism was harming us. Uh, but then I started looking at post-colonial countries and I found that absolutely fascinating. Europe I knew well, the United States I knew well, but I didn't know these post-colonial issues. And so that's what kept me working on this book. So mm -hmm. as I say, it was seven years through <laughs> seven languages with a manuscript of over 700 pages. Awesome. Well, there's a lot to uh, kind of get into there for sure. Um, right. <laughs> so, but it is interesting to start out with to say that you do have those two perspectives that for looking, let's say, outside the English speaking world, everyone seemingly wants to learn English. Uh, but there's obviously not the same. It's not the same on, on both sides, but reverse. But it's it's interesting how that doesn't translate into let's say more people coming to the u.s with more diverse backgrounds but it doesn't seem to translate into more foreign language skills in those countries yeah so that's that's interesting and and i think obviously it ties in very well with the the topic of migrant language learning as well which we also covered in a in another book um which is something that i'm very interested in as well uh, i've uh, i have a little project or not a project but there's a little danish town in, in iowa i go to once in a while called elkhorn and you know the language is, is all is all but lost but uh, they try to maintain some of the traditions even though it's been you know got a hundred and thirty fifty years since the, the settlers came and and went uh, so now they that and i think i don't know if you come across this at any point but i think the biggest loss of language there was the governor of the state outlawed the uh, the use of the local language in the church is about the 50s, 60s, somewhere around there for Iowa. And oh, really? yeah, the people okay. I talked to said that once that happened, because that was a big meeting place, right? These were pretty religious Danish people that came over. Uh, once that they take that away, it like hollows out the culture from the inside. That's a whole different uh, book, maybe like the the language language and religion. But, uh, you know, that that's why I'm also very fascinated about this topic. And you know, a lot of the podcast episodes also about people learning the heritage languages or rediscovering or teaching their kids, you know, that's a big topic. So, so yeah, it's a, I, I think, I think you fit right in with, <laughs> with the listeners here. Well, for my, my ancestral language was Italian. I guess you could tell from my surname that there's some Italian connection there. And uh, my, three of my grandparents were Italian immigrants. And uh, they did not want the grandchildren to speak Italian. Uh, and that's what that's what where the title of my last book, the last book came from, True American, because they really wanted my generation to be the true Americans, that we would not have any trace of a, an accent, that we would be mm. totally full-blooded Americans. So I didn't learn Italian until I went to the university. Yeah, and this is, uh, I, I think this is more the rule than the exception, to be honest, especially with the, those generations that came came in from Europe there. Um, I, I talked to a lot of people who are in that same situation. I don't know, have you seen a kind of a positive change in the other way, or do you think it's still kind of the same now? Oh, well, it's, it's rather it's interesting. More, more I, encouraged. I think, I think uh, my generation started searching for our roots. And so we, we went back to the, to the original, the ancestral country, uh, searching for our roots and felt very comfortable because we felt very comfortable being Americans. You know, we didn't have this torn identity. Um, 
And uh, I, the next generation doesn't feel from that old immigrant, immigrant wave from 100 years ago, okay? The next generation doesn't feel that tie at all. Right. I just, I think that's totally, you know, we had immigrant grandparents. They didn't. So when I look at my son, you know, he's American. Yeah. <laughs> and he speaks French fluently. <laughs> right. He doesn't speak Italian. So, you know, as a child, when I, we would take him to, to Italy, uh, people would ask me, well, why doesn't your son, you know, you're, you're speaking to us in Italian. Why doesn't your son speak Italian? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, right. So, but uh, newcomers, this new wave of immigrants, that's very interesting because they're maintaining their language and their culture mm. in a much more positive way. But they can because they have the internet. Okay. They live, many of them can live transnational lives where right. they go back and forth visiting their home country which was not the case of immigrants 100 years ago. Those who came pretty much came and never went back. And my grandparents never went back. Sure. Uh, and it was very difficult to, for them to communicate with their families. It was by postal mail. And that could take a long time. Whereas here, you just get on the internet, you can do Zoom meetings with your relatives. Uh, and so there's much uh, more direct contact with their, their home, uh, country and their relatives. And so you see the newer immigrants maintaining their language and their culture. Some folks don't like it. You know, some folks mm. are threatened by it, particularly because we have a huge Spanish speaking population in the country. Uh, and some, you know, there are some folks in the United States who find that very threatening. They don't mm. see it as a real resource for the country. Right. Yeah, but that comes back to, you know, exposure and I guess, uh, yeah, it's a experience, right? If if you don't see it or hear it, if you're not in it, then it's, it's you just don't, it doesn't evolve anywhere. It just, it stays the same, that kind of us and them mentality. Right. In a way. Right. Yeah, but... And that's un unfortunate. Uh, when I was writing the True American book, uh, one chapter is on Americanization past, and my editor at the time couldn't understand, well, why you, you know, this is about today, immigrant children today, why are you writing this historical chapter? I said, no, you don't understand. I want people to understand what their ancestors went through a hundred years ago, and how the public schools are very unkind to these children in so many ways, and how there were laws, right. quite the, the law you were mentioning in the 50s is interesting, because it was really around 1919, that a number of states, right at, at, after World War I, uh, a number of states adopted laws prohibiting teaching through another language in wow, the public. Was that early? Right, but but it was really a response to uh, the Germans, the Italians, you know, who our enemies were during mm. World War One. So this this issue in Iowa was that that's very very late. Yeah, date. I mean, it would have probably happened anyway, but. You know, I feel like if you're a, kind of a, a secular society, or community rather, then losing that would probably be like losing a part of your soul. And I could see I declined very quickly after that. Um, at least that's what I that's what I was told that that was around the time where the last the last uh, 
native speakers uh, were were still around there from you know second third generation um, and particularly to target the danish there there uh, there was a rash like in the 1980s 1990s going forward a bit of these english only laws that were adopted in a number of states in the united states where you know uh, english is the language of the state you know english is not our national language it's in terms of our, our country it's not in our constitution it's not in any Law, right. but they were adopting these English-only laws. So the the states were were, were they challenged then as unconstitutional by the? No, or... I mean, no. Uh, <laughs> it was it wasn't really unconstitutional. Uh, it was uh, I think it was bad public policy. <laughs> right. That was requiring you know everybody in government offices could only speak English, that we are an English only state. So the constitution, obviously I'm uh, not from America, so I'm not intimate, intimately familiar, but it doesn't afford the freedom of language. It affords a lot of other freedoms, but not language. Oh, it doesn't, you know, and uh... you know, that's one of the questions <laughs> we look at in my, in my comparative equality seminar, uh, looking at these newer democracies that have newer constitutions, and you do see a protection for linguistic or language rights in these newer constitutions. In our constitution, there's no mention of language at all. Hmm. Right. Yes, they didn't think that far ahead. <laughs> no, I guess not. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I guess not. They, didn't, they didn't anticipate the waves, huge waves of immigration that would ultimately wash over. Right. So what's uh, where's where's all this English stuff going? You know, everyone wants to learn English. The world is kind of running on English. The internet is kind of in English. What where's it all all going? Is there going to be a big counter push at some point where we're going to see more kind of other language, uh, you know, societies, websites, uh, schools, uh, or do you think it's just going to continue as kind of the lingua franca of the world, or where do you see it all going? For now, it is the dominant global lingua franca for better or worse, you know, and yeah. for better or worse. And, um, you know, there's speculation, what's going to be the, you know, Latin died, that was a lingua franca at one time. <laughs> Latin didn't, they didn't have an internet to really spread it as effectively as English has had. Um, it could be another language, you know, they speculate, well, could it be Mandarin Chinese? Could it be Spanish? Spanish is spoken at least unofficially on all five continents. So could it be Spanish? Nobody knows for sure. But for now, you know, one of the points of the book is that a common language is good. It does help us collaborate across borders, across linguistic and, and, and uh, national borders, but English cannot do it all. You know, that English really should exist in a multilingual world. And that's really a message to Anglophone countries like the United States and Great Britain and Australia and New Zealand and Canada, that where language, foreign language learning is really on a steep decline in Anglophone countries because the attitude is, well, if everybody speaks language, uh, English, why bother? You know, I can roam the world. You can roam the world speaking English. Um, my government officials can collaborate and, and communicate with other leaders across the world in English. Science, English has become the dominant language of science now. Right. Uh, 
you know, the downside is that when you look at when you look at countries in, in Europe, for example, professors are under the gun to learn English at this point, to teach right. in English because universities are offering more English courses to attract more international students. Uh, and the more they internationalize, the higher their rankings on these international mm. rankings universities. And so, it, you know, it, it is, there's this domino effect. Uh, and, you know, the more English courses they have, the more students are looking to come into, you know, they can recruit. And then the more students are interested. And that, so they have to develop even more English courses. So yeah. it, it put a lot of pressure on professors in other countries to learn English. And in terms of their publications, it's become published in English or perish. So if you're, if you're a scholar and you don't publish in English, particularly in the sciences, you know, you're frozen out. You're frozen out of all the networks for advancement, going to conferences now. It used to be that they would be bilingual or there would be translators or headsets or whatever. Now they're largely in English. And that, that is, you know, you really have to know a language quite well to give a scholarly presentation in the language. Yeah. Even for students, you know, students now to take all these courses taught in English need a certain level of English. Well, but yeah. They're in do it. You know, if you come from a family that's well resourced, well, maybe they gave you tutors along the way, or maybe you went to better resourced schools where you could learn English. There are a lot of inequities built into it. Right. I, I, I'd like to share just a quick story about that from my own life, because when I was going into high school, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life at all anyway, as probably most people. <laughs> um, but I, I saw that they had this international high school available called International Baccalaureate or IB. Oh, sure. And, and uh, I'd never heard about it. And there was a school about about an hour from where I lived, which for Denmark is, you know, quite a distance, you know, we're about a five hour country if you drive from one end to the other. So, you know, an hour is, uh, it's quite a while. Um, but anyway, I thought it's going to be interesting. Uh, my English is really good. Uh, or at least that's what everyone tells me at the time. And I thought, okay, it could be something different. And I get there and it's just, you know, most of the teachers are just middle-aged high school teachers who one day were told Oh, now you have to do it all in English. And I let me just say, like most of them were just it was awful, basically. Like half the classes we had to just endure the worst English of all time. And, you know, half the time they just kind of switched to Danish because a lot of the students were Danish anyway. And we had like a handful of people who had come from outside who were, you know, sons and daughters of diplomats or, you know, traveling um salesmen or things like that you know that were living in Denmark at the time and I would say that quality of education is would it it's definitely a lot lower than the equivalent would have been if I had done it in Danish um so you know and this is obviously this is a while ago so this is a I'd say about 15 years ago more or less um so still pretty recent but um that's that's what I see as a big risk. Now that might be a transition phase. That might be a you know twenty five years from now, maybe everyone in that in that position just speaks great English, so it won't make a difference. What do you think? I I think it is different. It's progressing. It, it, that was a transition phase, if you will. 
Uh, but there are still complaints made by, by students that um, the quality of English, the level of proficiency among some of their professors is not quite what it should be. Right. But it's hard to take seriously, isn't it? It's like, you know, the guy has seven PhDs, but he can't really say anything in English, then it's really hard to stay on the course. <laughs> right. right. And so that that is still a complaint that's made by some students. Yeah. It, and you can argue that progressively this will improve as this younger generation that is now learning in English, then they go into academia then the quality of teaching is going to improve at some point. Uh, but for now, it's still a problem. Yeah. Right. And are there any risks of any, are there any legal risks that countries might change their laws and become like kind of go backwards a little bit and, and, and like restrict the use? Well, you see it somewhat of a pushback in some countries. I think the Nordic countries, you know, Norway and Sweden and Denmark, uh, they were in the forefront on English language right. programs in, in the universities. Uh, but I think you see some forces within those countries beginning to question, well, have we gone too far? And one of the issues, you know, one of the issues is the, the quality of teaching and the level of proficiency among the faculty and among the students. Uh, but another is the loss of the national language. To what extent are we losing the national language uh, that pushback is happening in the Netherlands. And, and one of the case studies in my book, I, I look at there are really three case studies, the French case, the Italian case, and then the Netherlands. Uh, and in the Netherlands, they've been uh, debating this issue oh, since the early 1990s. And they too have probably the most percentage-wise English language programs in Western Europe of all the countries. Right. Yet they too are beginning to question it. To what extent uh, they, they look at the quality of education, they look at accessibility. Is it that we're bringing in so many international students that we don't have room for our own students? There's a, a huge problem on housing, student housing uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, and they're looking at the loss of Dutch. To what extent are our own students not learning Dutch? And are we preparing them to work within their communities? If you're going to be a psychologist or a social worker, you need certain terminology in, in that in the national language in order to work in those communities. Hmm. And so these are the issues that are swirling around this debate within the Netherlands right now. And these are, it's probably because of the size of the countries that they're so kind of easy to push in one direction or the other, like for instance, Denmark has a very high uh, proficiency of English, uh, maybe among the highest in the world, I'm not sure, but um, obviously with 5 million, 6 million people, it's harder to justify be speaking more Danish because you want to be competitive, you know, on the job market, we're now in a global market rather than just the local community, right? So yeah. I guess that's the... Challenge. These are countries with small languages, what we call small languages. That, oh, yeah. Like Spain that has a big language. It's spoken you know, unofficially on five continents or, or English or even French with all those French colonies, former colonies. Absolutely, yeah. So these are countries with small languages. 
And so they realized early on that in order to compete in this global economy and global marketplace, they really had to speak what seemed to be becoming the dominant language, English. Yeah. Which is, uh, and then you run the risk of kind of losing a little bit of your own identity along the way if we had all the programs in English. And, you know, I'm finding that to be kind of, it's sort of a, something that's swirling around my head. And I did give a presentation at a conference on this, on this issue back in June. Uh, is it changing identity in these European countries in any way? That, you know, are, are people uh, developing a European identity as part of the EU? I'm not sure. What do, you, do you think so? Whew. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um... Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like there's the kind of the EU is this brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever that some people make it out to be. I, I think people are happy to be in the geographical union, but I think most people don't really care too much about all the other things that they do, uh, unless you get funding, of course, or you're an Erasmus student or, you know, unless it directly affects you. I think most people are, are just happy to be down local uh, identity. But I think someone like me who moves out of the country and conduct most of my life in English, there is a big shift. And I'm not sure I like it all the time, but I guess that's just part of normal life, you know, that the Danishness of me will be sort of less and less. And when I go home, I feel like a bit of a foreigner, but you know, that's, that's what the life I chose, you know, I moved out and I've stayed the last, um, I don't know, the last 10 years I've stayed, maybe eight of them outside the country. So it's been, it's been a while now. But do you think that's more, you're having moved out of the country, mm. then you're not speaking Danish? Yeah, no, that's probably, that's probably a big part of it. But if people are in the country and they go for you go to university for instance i guess some time ago almost all the programs would have been offered in danish except for a few rare uh, global programs but now i think they probably offer most of them in english if not the vast majority uh, so that has to have some effect i'm sure you know i would think so i just wonder there's this fear that with adopting the language learning the language you're adopting the values too. Mm. So is it uh, American culture is washing over Europe, not just American English. And it's really more American English that European is speaking than British English from what I, I hear. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, I would think so. That's probably, I mean, I had a bit of a, when I was younger, I had a bit of a counter towards the American English because everyone around me was speaking in that accent. And I always thought the British accent sounded nicer. I don't know, just <laughs> not a big difference. But uh, so I tried when I was younger to put on a more British style accent and vocabulary. But you're right, like the majority of Danish people will have, if they don't have a Danish accent, of course, which also a lot of people have, they will probably sound more American, which is funny because you can take a flight one hour and you're in the UK, right? So geographically you're a lot closer but it's all about the culture it's all about the television the movies and exactly things. it's about it's about all that 
soft power um, yeah. of culture that uh, that is spreading across the globe coming out of the United States. And so I, I, I find that kind of interesting, that question. I don't know the answer. If in fact, Europeans are somehow losing their strong national identity. And is it a little bit more of a European identity? I don't really get that sense. Is, and I think you're pretty much saying that. Or is, are they adopting whatever would be considered, I don't know, American values in some way? Some kind of, yeah. Whatever that is, whatever. Yeah, I think that is, this is super interesting. Um, but I, like you, I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have an answer for this. But I guess we are seeing some pushbacks in the, especially the Eastern European countries, of rejecting very progressive ideas, um, based on essentially their culture and values of that country. So countries like Hungary and Poland, and you know, you see these countries that are saying that this is not who we are, we don't believe in this, we don't want to do this. And there are, you know, massive riots and massive clashes between the two ideological groups. But yet you see, it's the conservative governments, you know, typically, in those countries, like the, the, the right wing parties that are upholding those cultural and historical values, typically, anyway, um, are the ones being elected. So that shows me anyway, that that's what generally the majority wants. So I guess we'll we'll have to see where that goes. But for now, I think uh, it's a little bit up in the air. Yeah, yeah. You see the rise of nationalism in right. European countries. But you see the rise of nationalism elsewhere as well. But isn't it funny that this it's all about a balance? It's like you, you should be nationalistic, but not, you know, too much. You know, <laughs> there's a difference between appreciating your values right. and then, you know, denying everyone else's. <laughs> well, sometimes it's nationalism masked as patriotism. Right. <laughs> but it's really nationalism. <laughs> yeah, there's a, everything in, in too much can be bad. I guess that goes for English too. You know, we don't want to no, no, throw it uh, or, you know, we don't want everyone to just use only English. You know, that would be certainly a sad world. I think so. I think it really um, narrows your point of view. Right. Where we're not, so now you have scholarship that's being produced through an English, i.e. American, if you will, lens or Anglo, Anglo lens. And I have to believe that, you know, the, the, the Spanish or Italian or German or Danish or whatever French lens is somewhat different even the way of organizing arguments is different in different languages. Mm, of course. Yeah. We see that the, this Anglo, the Anglo argument is, is, um, is dominating in scholarship now. And that, to me, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Do you have any other tips and, or do you have any tips and advice for people who are, let's say from a non-native English speaking country and they're looking to a obviously improve their English, but also maybe go down a, an, an, an academic route in, a, in English? Is there anything they can do to better equip themselves uh, for, for that kind of, maybe they want to study in America or other English-speaking countries? What you really need is what we call academic English, which is not just conversational English. 
you need to you need to understand the nuances of of the language, uh, and that's very difficult. You know what we learn even in, in foreign language courses here, we learn conversation, but we don't learn acad academic English. And so I think the only way you could really learn that uh, is to, if you're lucky enough, to attend primary schools and middle schools and you know, secondary schools that have really good English teachers. Uh, or if you're really lucky enough to have parents who can afford tutors and you see that. That, and that's, you know, those are, that's one of the issues that I address in, in the book, that there are these inequities that are built into language. You know, if you're wealthy, you can provide your child with really great English courses, or in this country, with great foreign language courses. If you're poor, when you look at a country, you look at a, a, some of these colonial countries where there are these um, low fee paying schools, Okay, that parents will, in India, parents will sell ancestral property to just put their child into one of these so-called private schools, which really are not teaching because they're going to learn English, but they're really not teaching them English very well at all. Some of these private schools, and, and the fees are very low, but for these people, it's really, it, it's really arduous for them to pay them. Uh, some of them are in ramshackle buildings, uh, the teachers, barely have a, a secondary school education. And yet English is so dominant in the minds of these parents because they feel this is this will give their child a leg up in in their careers in, in this global economy. Right. So English has become a gatekeeper. Right. Has become a gatekeeper. Whereas just uh, thinking out loud, if it wasn't such a big deal about which language you could do. You could become like, let's say you wanted, you, you could become like a full dentist or something in your local language. And then you can, you have the skills and you could then do the job somewhere else. You could apply for, to move somewhere else, but because you need, I, I, I think it's a joke from a TV show. Um, I think it was house. Maybe it was like um, my, uh, my, my medicine, my degree in medicine has the problem of not being from your country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it she couldn't count. get a job as it a doctor. Yeah. Or it doesn't count. Uh, yeah. and, that's, um, and that's unfortunate. That one, one chapter in the book just looks at uh, marketing English, you know, the, the, the English as a commodity. What's the value? And what is the, the value of multilingual skills as well? Oh, right. And there's yeah. all this data on both. You know, how much does Eng will English pay on the job market in a non-Anglophone country? Could be quite a lot. And how much do language skills pay in an Anglophone country? Could be not as much, but it, it is substantial enough in terms of your career opportunities. Mm. And it's not just uh, multinational corporations. Some of them are now changing totally to English. as The home office is totally in English. Rakuten. In, in Japan, just decided we're going to be a totally English company from beginning to day. And wow. so all the signs in the building, the cafeteria, everything were changed into English. And the workers had two years to develop their English sufficiently. And if they didn't you know, make the mark on an English test, they were out. Uh, 
I see. And at some point, I think within about two or three years, I think it was 80% of the engineers in the Tokyo office were not Japanese. Right. Well, that's what happens when you have those kind of policies, right? Right. Uh, but, um, and, and that's a shame because, you know, I know Rakuten doesn't only work in English speaking countries. So, you oh. know, you, why would you need to that have that? I think having a, you know, a useful level is fine, just communication, but expecting people to be basically multilingual is, uh, I mean, that's a tall order. Exactly, exactly. Cause... So there, there again are the inequities of it and the burdens, you know, as much as there are the benefits of this common language that we can collaborate with each other, uh, there are also the burdens of it. Absolutely. Excuse me, this is my, <laughs> my phone ringing. Uh, and so uh, when you look at, well, just look at the current uh, pandemic, okay? Uh, and so it's not just multi multinational corporations, it's service providers. It's when you have the United States, we have a huge immigrant population that doesn't speak English. Uh, and so we need uh, other language speakers at banks, at, at shops, at stores, mm. certainly in hospitals. And we found it within the pandemic where the, this was a, is still a serious health crisis. And we need people in those hospitals who can communicate with patients and with the families of patients, giving them very critical information. And so yeah. saw that really highlighted, it's not just big multinational corporations that are going to hire foreign language speakers. We just need them. We need service providers as well. Right. And it, so just rounding off it kind of a, a similar advice, but for, you know, the, the Anglophones listening to use that term, uh, the people from the US or uh, Canada or Great Britain, who are listening to the podcast, I know there's a lot of them who might be interested in learning a language or they've begun kind of the the journey of, of doing so. Uh, what kind of message would you have to, to them uh, on top of, of this, what you just said? Well, I think they should take it very seriously and to do it very diligently. It's hard to learn a language when you're not in the country. I mean, you know, it, it, we have to be honest about that. Absolutely. It's I mean, it's hard to hard. learn. A, I would like to say, I think it's hard to learn a language no matter what. I think it's a very, you know, long time, consistent effort that rivals, you know, weight loss and other big feats of, of, of strength. So it never downplay the, the difficulty. It's definitely hard, but it's not, uh, you know, the difficulty it's not complicated, you know, anyone could do it. And the materials are, uh, you know, there are more than ever resources available. My goodness, on the internet, <laughs> yeah. just, the internet is flooded with programs to learn. Uh, you could have work with a tutor virtually, you know, you could work with a tutor personally, work with a tutor virtually. Some of this is somewhat costly and some of it isn't. Some yeah. of it isn't at all. It's free. Try, right and try to get yourself into some kind of a community of people who, with whom you can speak that language just for practice. Yeah, amazing and great. And this is obviously also why I do this podcast, you know, to keep people engaged and interested and motivated in, in adding more language skills, because we definitely believe that the world is better multilingually. And I think the benefits for me are, you know, 
yeah, I can't even begin to describe the the positive benefits it's had for me to know more than one language. And and like you said earlier in, in the recording, you know, it was also about culture and understanding of other people and uh, I guess empathy in a way, you know, you understand people better if you have the language. I, it's kind of weird how that works, but it's just true. Oh, it's true. <laughs> Makes it less alien, maybe. I don't know if that's it, you know, I don't know. It's uh, it's strange, you know, when I was learning Russian, I was often when I heard Russian, I would say, oh, these people, they seem like, why are they so angry and upset all the time? And then I learned the language. And I was like, they're just normal people like everyone else. You know? <laughs> so it, it's kind of interesting. But I think, yeah, it's it's worth it for sure. And if people want to travel and things like that, then the experiences you get with just a little bit of the local language is completely night and day from from just having English. And people uh, appreciate your, your, your making some attempt at speaking their language. Very much so. So but anyway, I know this uh, topic uh, could probably be, I mean, you've written quite a lot on the topic. And uh, so I know this uh, 40 minutes might not have uh, done it justice, but just remind us uh, what the book is called and where everyone can uh, go and get it. Uh, the book is called The Rise of English. Uh, global politics and the politics, global politics and the power of language, uh, and it's published by Oxford University Press. It's due any day. We're a little worried about supply chains in getting the book out. Right. Uh, it should be available uh, any day. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, have a, a fantastic day. Thank you. Totally, my pleasure.